Well, it began with a single drop of water that splashed down on the Mediterranean Sea. And the Apostle Paul was in a ship that was nearby. He was a prisoner uh, sailing on his way to Rome. And that drop of water soon became a downpour. The downpour soon became a storm, and the storm soon became violent. Uh, There was thunder and lightning and waves splashing against the, the boat. And the people who were on this ship didn't see the sun or the stars for days and days. And in fact, the sailors became so convinced that they were going to die that they panicked and they started throwing all of the contents of the ship overboard in an act of desperation, uh, even including the tackle. But God sent an angel who stood beside the Apostle Paul and told him some good news, that everyone who stayed on that ship was going to make it. Now, Paul passed that word on, but the sailors didn't believe it. In fact, they tried to sneak away in the middle of the night on the lifeboat so that they could abandon the ship, they thought, to survive. But Paul, before they could do that, anticipated it. And he had the ropes to that lifeboat severed and pushed away. Don't leave the ship, he said. Life is here. Stay aboard. Do not go anywhere else. Now, there's a word for what he told them that day. And that word is abide. And abiding is the central theme of what we've been looking at for the last three weeks during this series. It's the main point of John chapter 15. And if you look at verse 5, verse 5 is just a great summary of everything we've been thinking about for the last couple of weeks. In verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been thinking a bit about this passage and the fact that Jesus is like a vine and his people who have been saved by his grace are like branches that are attached to the vine. Uh, There's an organic connection between us and him so that everything that Jesus has and is belongs to us too. And we've thought about how he holds us up and he gives us life and he empowers us. The Bible says that he makes us fruitful. That is, that Jesus produces within us the character that he has himself. So his love and his joy and his great patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control rubs off on us and it begins to sprout up in our lives too. And we've talked about how we play a part in that process. Our part is to abide. And in 16 verses that Jesus describes this illustration, he uses the word abide 10 times. Remain in me. Stay here. Do not go anywhere else, Jesus says, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, this illustration um, in it, God tells us that there are two kinds of branches that there are branches that God prunes and there are branches that he trims. And this morning, what we want to spend a little bit of time thinking about are both of those kinds of branches. 
uh, they're, they're very different from each other, but they're both pictured in this passage. And so we're going to close it out in that way. And you may have noticed this already, but the first kind of branch that uh, Jesus describes is in the second part of verse 2. He says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Okay, so the first type of branch that's described here is a fruitful living branch which is pruned by God to produce more fruit. But there's a second branch too. The second branch is a fruitless dead branch that is trimmed and only good to be burned in a fire. And you see that at the first part of verse 2. Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then if you look down in verse 6, he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Now, one of the reasons that we want to take a look at this second branch, this uh, branch that we're told is trimmed, is because it's a matter of confusion and concern for many people who read about it. Um, It's hard to understand what or who the dead branches are. And sometimes what happens is people read this passage and they'll have a real fear within them that says, well, what if this is me? Uh, I had a person who called this this week. They called the church and said, could you please talk about these branches because I've wondered about them. I had another person say, say the same thing this morning. And the dead branches are not the central part of this passage. They're, they're kind of ancillary to it in some ways. But we thought we would stop and, and address here this morning what these dead branches are. Um, I'm going to try to do that quickly. Okay, so what are these dead branches that Jesus talks about that are trimmed and that are only good for the fire, he says? Well, one view of these uh, branches is that they refer to unfruitful Christians who lose their salvation. Okay, some people think that these are unfruitful Christians who lose their salvation. So, a person is saved by the grace of God, by Jesus' work in uh, forgiving our sins, but at some point down the line, they start to live a disobedient lifestyle, and there's no fruit that shows up in their life, internally or externally, and God is patient. He waits and waits and waits and and gives them every resource that they might need so that fruit might show up, but it never does. And like a dead branch, eventually God cuts them off and they lose their salvation. Something that they had is gone. And so the question of this morning is, does this passage teach that a believer can lose their salvation? Well, one thing that's helpful to understand when we come across questions like this is that the Bible is a big book that's made up of 66 smaller books. And the message of the Bible is a unified one. Okay, that's one thing that's so amazing about the Word of God is that concepts don't compete with each other throughout the Bible. Concepts complement each other. And that's helpful to us because when we come to a passage that's difficult in some way or that we have a question about or isn't you know, quite clear, we're not quite sure, what we do is we let the clear truths of the whole Bible 
interpret for us the, the smaller pieces of unclear truth, okay? So the big Bible guides us to understand the smaller pieces of the Bible. Now, at, at Grace Church, we believe that the Bible clearly teaches a concept that is called eternal security, okay? That is not a, a phrase that's ever used in the Bible. It's not stated directly, but it is the undercurrent of the entire Bible. And the big picture of this book is this, that people cannot save themselves, that even the best of us in life fall short. And so salvation can never be based on us. It is always based on God. The Bible teaches that in a person's life, salvation is begun by God. He's the one who starts it. We're told that it's maintained by God. It, it is not us who grasp and hang on to him. It is he who grasps and hangs on to us. And we're also told that salvation is something that God completes. Just for one example, the book of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 tells us that Believers are sealed until the day of redemption. Another word for sealed is secured. Okay, so what that passage does not say is that we are sealed until we sin too much. It doesn't tell us that we're sealed until we don't believe enough. It doesn't tell us that we're sealed until God runs out of patience with us. It tells us that Christians are sealed and secure until God sees them through to the very end. To take away the concept of eternal security is like knocking a domino down that ripples throughout every page of this book. And if we say that salvation is up to me to keep, right? God does his part, but... I better not blow it because I've got to do my part too. Then the way that we view so many of the doctrines of the Christian faith changes. I mean, think about this for a second. Adoption. Adoption is one of the concepts that's taught in the New Testament that when we trust in Christ, we are permanently brought into a relationship with him where we are his sons and daughters. Now, without eternal security, we don't get that. We're more like foster children, right? We have some better relationship with him, but we'll, we'll see how this works out to know whether or not you'll be adopted or not. Another way to think about this is, is this way. If it's true that God forgives all of my sin the moment I trust in him to do that, that the sins of my past the sins of my present, and the sins of my future have all been forgiven, how is it possible to step outside of that? Right? If everything has already been covered, how can I possibly sin in a way that would cause me to lose what God has already given me? But you know, one of the, one of the hearts of the Christian faith is that the Bible tells us that we ought to live confidently with joy in all that we certainly have, that Christ has given to us by his own strength and power, not to live in fear of what we might lose. The dead branches cannot be a person who loses their salvation because there is no such thing. 
So there's got to be another explanation for this passage. Okay, another view of this is that the dead branches are a Christian's good works that were not truly good. Okay, so an example of this might be a teenager who's walking down the street and he sees an old lady who's getting ready to cross and it's a busy intersection. And so he says to her, Madam, you must not cross this intersection by yourself. There is danger here. So take my arm and I will see you through to the other side. But standing next to that old lady is a young lady. And it's the old lady's cute granddaughter, right? And the young guy was really just interested in kind of getting a date with her, right? So what looked like this uh, wonderful piece of concern that he had for her was just kind of a manipulation to get a date, right? And that good work, this person, this person who views this passage this way, would be like a dead branch that God trims and he tosses into the fire, Okay? Now, here's the thing. That is something that we're, co- that we're told that God does with believers' works. Uh, you can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're, we're told that God sees through our supposed good works with, that truly have uh, bad or impure intentions behind them, and that in the end, when it comes to rewards of our life, God rewards the things that, that truly were good, not the things that weren't. But the question is, is that what's being talked about here when Jesus talks about the dead branches? And there's a problem with that line of thinking. The problem is that verse 6 starts with the word anyone. Okay, So Jesus is not talking here about things. He's talking about people. Okay, So that cannot be what John chapter 15 is talking about either. Well, there's a third view. And the third view is that the dead branches refer to someone who is loosely connected to Christ but has never experienced true saving faith. And the context of this passage actually really seems to help support this viewpoint. Uh, If you go back to what we talked about in the first week of this series with what just happened before Jesus said these words, he and his disciples were in the upper room and he gave them some shocking news, and that was that Judas, who had been a part of their team for three years, was going to betray them. Okay? He was exposed as a traitor, and this would have been on everyone's mind, including Jesus at this moment. Now, Judas was a part of everything that Jesus and the disciples had done, or at least most of the things, but it turned out that his connection was very distant in reality from Jesus, that Judas was a person who had some connection to him, but his heart had never truly been transformed. And I think what you have as a primary example of the dead branches is Judas. This could be any person who does religious things, but they don't have a real relationship with God. They might know a lot about God, but they've never really known him personally. See, when Jesus talks about being connected to the vine, it's, it's more than just a vague association with Christian things. It's, it's having a new life that's based on the death and resurrection of Christ. 
I know that um, a passage like this can, as it, as it did for some, even this week, stir up questions for people. And I, I actually had a whole big thing of notes, and I realized it was going to take too long if I went through them. Um, so we're not going to cover some of this. But I, I will say this. If you want to know more about this, come and talk to me later if you want to. Um, I'm locking up today, okay? So I'm going to be here for a little while. And um, in saying that, that's the joy of any of the pastors and elders and staff here at the church. We are always available to talk about things. It's what we love to do. So please don't be shy to do that. But let me end this section by just giving you an example of someone who may or may not have been a dead branch. I don't think we can always know who that might be. Um, there was a student who came to our high school youth group years and years ago whose family came to the church for probably about three or four years. And uh, he came to our, our group, our Impact High School group. This guy was very smart. He associated himself with our church. This was his church. Our youth group was his youth group. And he had lots of questions about Christianity. And he and I literally spent hours and hours talking and debating. He, he really enjoyed debating, and he was very interested in science. But the more that our conversations went on, the more that I realized that this guy really did not have any interest in God at all. Um, in fact, I started to think, I think he just likes to hear himself talk because he's not trying to, to move forward in, in any way. He's just talking and talking and talking. And, and I think that he was a part of our church to kind of get enough Christianity so that in case he was wrong, he was still covered. Does that make sense? And it's really sad to say this, but I think that, that, that this passage here might describe that guy. I mean, he had a very loose connection to the Christian faith, but he had no true relationship with God. And what God says to people like that is, I will take that branch away. I will take that branch away. This image is a very serious warning to a person who is like that guy. And I don't want to take away from that warning as we talk this morning. You know, sometimes we read words like this and we think, man, isn't God being kind of harsh? Isn't that kind of a harsh thing for Jesus to say? But again, the heart of this passage is not the dead branches. The heart of this passage is be a living branch. The heart of this passage is come to me. There's life here. It's an invitation. Any dead branch can change to a living one in a moment. And what God is saying is, I want you to come aboard the ship where it's safe. And in order for you to understand that or recognize that, it's not going to happen until you realize that there's a hole in your lifeboat. I wonder if I could go back in time and talk with that guy again and, and point him to this passage, if it might have woken him up a little bit. I don't know. Sometimes Jesus says hard words to wake us up. Hard words to soften us not to harden us. That's what Jesus describes as 
trimming. But there's another kind of branch, and that is a branch that's a living branch and a fruitful branch. And again, as I said, that's God's hope for every person. This is the the invitation for all of us. And the passage teaches us that becoming an alive, uh, fruitful branch comes as we learn how to abide. I don't know about you, but unfortunately, abiding is not something that usually comes naturally to us, is it? Uh, our tendency is like those sailors, right? We, we want to sneak off the ship. And so we're always looking for another way, right? Or a different lifeboat or some kind of a shortcut. But what God wants to do and what God is committed to do in, in the life of his people is to shatter our faith in ourselves and shatter the faith that we might have in any other lifeboat and to help us to realize that apart from him, there is nothing else that's out there for us. So how does God help us to do that? How does God work on our stubbornness? Well, this passage tells us he does something called pruning. Prunes us. Now, what is pruning? How does God use pruning in our lives? I want to illustrate that just for a few minutes. Uh, Most of us are at least somewhat familiar with pruning. Uh, Pruning makes a plant healthier and stronger and, and more fruitful. What happens in the process is that the gardener takes out the clippers and he removes excess growth and pieces in the plant that don't belong. Uh, She takes away plant tissue that has been injured by disease or insects and kind of separates the branches so that there's increased airflow so that the plant is protected and more durable and healthy and able to thrive. But the thing that's important to note about the pruning process is that it is not pretty. Uh, My grandmother is an incredible green thumb. She can make anything grow. In fact, I was over at her house uh, just last weekend, and she had this beautiful fern that was growing only in water, you know? And and I said, Grandma, there's no dirt in there. And uh, she said, yeah. She said, I thought I would try it. It's, It's a process that's called rooting, and it just grows in the water. And I thought to myself, I'm not sure she should do that, you know? I mean seems like she's tampering with a law of nature that should not be tampered with. I'm going to give her a copy of Jurassic Park. I think she needs to watch that. Well, one time a few years ago, she came to my house to work on my garden, which hadn't been worked on by me. It was a flower garden. And uh, she said to me, Paul, I think your garden needs some work. Would you mind if I, if I you know, did some pruning on it? And um, I said, sure. And I went to work for the day. And when I came home, I looked at my garden, and it was like there was nothing there anymore, you know? It was like uh, she'd given my garden a really, really bad haircut, you know? And, and I thought, well, thanks a lot, Grandma, for destroying my garden. I thought she might have had a bad day or something like that. And uh, I had a conversation with her about her medication, but, you know, that seemed to be fine. But the thing that was so interesting about it is when I first looked at the garden, I thought, I thought she was going to help me, but what it really looks like is that she was hurting things. And that's how the process of pruning often looks. The process of pruning is not pretty. 
uh, as I was thinking about this passage, there was one event that came to mind for me in my life, just so clear. I don't always feel like God's pruning process in me is, uh, you know, something that I always notice or recognize right away, but in this case, I did. Uh, about a year ago, my wife was pregnant with our daughter, Emma, and she came to me and she said, she said, Paul, there's an event that I think would be really fun for us to go to, and I think we'd have a good time together. And she had uh, kind of a loose connection to the people who were hosting this event, and I really didn't want to go. And I said, well, honey, you know, maybe we could do some, something else that might be more fun. And she said, well, yeah, you know, I think we should just really give us this a try. This will be fun. And so I agreed to do it, and some time went on, and then I was kind of regretting that I agreed to do it. And uh, I got up that day, and I really had a bad attitude. In fact, I had kind of a bad attitude all week, to be honest. And uh, so we went to this event, and um, I tried to hide it, but I just was not enjoying myself. And one thing I can tend to do that I, I'm really wanting God to work on me in is I can critique stuff, you know? Instead of just enjoying stuff, I, I critique it too much, and that's exactly what I did. So anyway, we, we went to dinner that night, and she let me pick the restaurant, and we sat down, and, and right away she said, so, you know, what did you think about this event? And I said, well, you know, it was okay. And she said, really? You know, is that all that you thought? And I said, well, since you asked. <laughs> and um, I started telling her what I really thought about this event. And the, yeah, oops, is right. Um, <laughs> the more I spoke, I could feel it within me. The more negative I became. And I even knew as I was talking about this thing that it's not even about this event at all. It's, it's like my attitude. And, and my attitude was coming up, but I couldn't stop, you know, and, and I, I was just getting worse and worse. And finally, um, she's standing there listening, at, sitting at this booth, and her eyes start to get red, and she starts crying. And she, she began to cry in the middle of this restaurant. And right at that moment, the waitress came over and started to ask us about our order, and she looked at my wife, and then she looked at me like... <laughs> what have you said to this poor pregnant woman? You know, what's going on here? And, and she got up and left. And then my wife got up and went to the bathroom. And I felt a feeling within me. I don't, I don't ever remember feeling this way in my life. Is I felt panic. Like, what have I just done? How could I be so stupid? And what I really wanted to do at that moment is I wanted to run. I mean, I wanted to get in my car, and I wanted to get away because I was so embarrassed. I was embarrassed because of my wife, but even more than that, I felt so embarrassed before God. And I just felt like God was, was looking at me and thinking, you know, the kind of husband, the kind of person, the kind of Christian that you want to be, you aren't. The fruit that is supposed to show up in a person's life, we don't see, and I remember within me feeling like this longing, oh, will God forgive me? Oh, I don't want to be this person. I don't just want to not do the things I've just done, but I want to be a different kind of person on the inside. And I just wanted things to be right with God. And I wanted things to be right with my wife. I felt desperate. I talked about this with Katie um, this past week, you know, because I run my illustrations by her 
usually. And uh, she, said, she said, yeah, you know, you're welcome to say that, but you should know, she said, it really wasn't that big of a deal. She said, I was just pregnant, you know? <laughs> she said, that's what pregnant women do, is, is we do that. And, and you know, um, that was probably true of her, honestly, because she's not a person that gets real upset about that. But here's the thing. Her tears were exactly what I needed. They were exactly what I needed. They were the only way that I was going to see the things that I needed to see. And God used her tears to expose me and build within me a desperation for him. And I think that's what pruning does. God's pruning in our life is not punishment, right? It's not God trying to make us feel bad for something. God's pruning in our life is not meant to be a kick in the pants, okay? It's, it's not so that we would double up our efforts to do good. We'll just end up back in the same place again if we do that. Pruning is meant to draw us back to the heart of God so that his character can rub off on us and begin to sprout up in our lives too. And here's the thing. The hard thing about being a Christian and a wonderful thing about being a Christian is that like a good gardener, God is not afraid to pull out the shears. Pruning is often very painful. Pruning is sometimes humiliating, as it was for me at that moment. It's almost always unwelcome. But we need to know that even though God does it, he doesn't delight in it. God takes no joy whatsoever from us experiencing pain. I love what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. When you walk past a garden that is unpruned, you know immediately that it's a garden It's a gardener, excuse me, who doesn't care so much, right? The fact that God prunes us should tell us that God does. God prunes, prunes us because he loves us and he is committed to us. But pruning is usually painful. You know, it's not always as dramatic or obvious as it was for me. Sometimes we don't even know that it's happening. We don't realize it. I think that God is always pruning us. It's his ongoing work in our life. And sometimes we have moments that we see it clearly, but usually I don't even think that we do. Sometimes the fruit of God's pruning work is obvious. But sometimes I think it's fruit that only he sees. It's, It's secret fruit that only God knows of. Someone once said that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Now, if that's true, think about your last week. Think about the small disappointments that you faced, discouraging conversations, fleeting insecurities, broken promises. Think about the things that just did not quite go last week how you wished they would go. 
or a nagging doubt that you had or a problem or a question that you just had to live with that didn't get resolved. Think about the people in your life last week who made choices for you that you wouldn't have made or who didn't listen to you when they should have been listening. Think about the unkindness or the unfairness of the world, uh, the ways that your life just didn't feel like home. You might call these things life's small-scale sorrows. If this is true, if John 15 is true, what that means is that last week God was there, that he is our constant gardener, working patiently, quietly, hidden from our sight, exposing and clipping away, making us thirsty so that we would thirst only for him, snipping away at the ropes that anchor our lifeboats that we might finally abandon them and training us to abide. Back to the vine, God calls out quietly. Sometimes he shouts out urgently. Back to the source of life and health, he says as he prunes us. Back to the one who loves you most and who loves you best. Back to the one who you loved at first. God says to us in life's little problems, draw back to me. You are always welcome back. Well, the application of this passage for all of us is the same. Jesus says it 10 times in 16 verses. He says, abide. Abiding is meant to be like the default setting of the Christian life, that in all times, in all seasons, in the ups and downs and twists and turns of life, in whatever you face, whether good or bad, God invites you and I to abide, to stay put, and to enjoy the security that we have in Christ. I am the vine, he says, and you are the branches Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this passage and pray that you would teach us to abide. I'm sure that there are those who are in this room who feel like they are being pruned. Would you please help them to draw close to you and abide? There are those, I'm sure, who are doubting, who wonder if you truly are committed to them, who question whether or not you love them. Pray that you would help them to abide. There are those who, all things in life seem good. The road is sunshine ahead. Please help them to abide as we face uh, struggles and difficulties and pain and loss, either big or small, would you please teach us to abide in you? And would we be a church that abides in you so deeply that um, 
you produce rich, great fruit in all of our lives. Thank you, Father, for this incredible invitation. Thank you that you want us. We pray that we would really take these things to heart. In Jesus' name.